0: Join me in prayer as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Well, this week, uh, we complete our three-week study of the book of Philemon. It's only 25 verses. Maybe at the beginning of this series, you were like, there's no way we're going to make it through three weeks. This is going to get boring. But I think that we've learned that there is so much good and challenging stuff in this letter. I think that we could go for another three weeks or three months if we wanted to. Um, But we're going to end this Sunday, begin our Advent journey next Sunday. Uh, But we're going to end today on a theme that's been on my mind and my heart a lot. Uh, I even had an opportunity to kind of preach on a similar theme at the end of the summer when we were in the book of Nehemiah, but I want to preach on the theme of accountability. I want to look at the theme of accountability as we see it in the book of Philemon. Just a refresher of where we've been in case you're just joining us or you need a refresher. This letter is centered around three men. Paul is the author, Philemon's the recipient, and the, uh, uh, the subject of the letter is a man named Onesimus. And Paul is writing to his friend. Philemon is a friend. There, he's writing to his friend. His friend Philemon hosts a, uh, a church in his home in the city of Colossae. Uh, he is a wealthy man. He's a slave owner. And he had a slave named Onesimus who ran away. Likely stole possessions, money from his master, and fled to Rome. Where somehow, amazingly, he comes into contact with Paul, and what is Paul better at than anybody else in the history of the church? Bringing people to a saving relationship with Jesus, which is exactly what he does with this runaway slave, Onesimus. And eventually, Paul encourages Onesimus to return to Philemon with this very letter in hand, to deliver to him, to have it read to the church. And in that letter, Paul exhorts Philemon to to take Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a dear, beloved brother, which he does. It's an amazing story of transformation. I've said it for a couple weeks. I think it's one of the greatest stories of transformation and reconciliation that we have in the history of the church. Two weeks ago, we looked at how choosing Jesus as our primary identity changes our relationships, giving us a new sense of family, where a slave can become a brother. Last week, we examined the theme of freedom in Philemon, and particularly Paul posturing himself as a prisoner of the Lord. We talked about how a biblical understanding of freedom is not how we normally hear about it today, liberty, autonomy, but rather the freedom to choose the right constraints, ultimately finding Jesus as the source of true freedom. And I want to conclude this week by talking about Philemon and the picture that this letter paints of a new vision that we can have for accountability in our lives. So I want to look at this scripture today. I picked a few verses that uh, particularly highlight that, verses 4 through 7 and 17 through 22. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? If you want put to a, put a thumb in, in page 970 of your pew Bible, if you brought your Bible with you, we will come back to this. But hear God's word for us today. Paul writing to his friend Philemon. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. And then to verse 17. So if you consider me a partner... Welcome, Onesimus, as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about you owing me your very self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. One more thing, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So Paul really does pull out all the stops in this little letter. He commends Philemon for his faith before making this big appeal that he receive Onesimus, the slave who has wronged him back as a brother. He makes it clear, painstakingly clear, that this is not some scribe who is writing this. This is not some school of Pauline thought that's writing this letter. I, Paul, am writing this to you, and I expect you to obey what I'm asking you to do. And he ends the text by saying that he hopes to be free of his confinement. He's under house arrest in Rome at this time. He hopes to be free of that soon so that he can come and visit Philemon and see his good deeds. I've been saying for a couple of weeks, uh, it's just genius writing by Paul, really a master stroke in in rhetoric and persuasive writing, some of the best that we have from the first century. But I want to also own that it can be a bit of a turnoff to people. Paul can be a little bit off-putting sometimes. I was in a a really difficult conversation recently with a dear friend, uh, a brother in the faith who's going through a really tough time in his own faith, his his relationship to the church and the Bible, and we're talking through all sorts of different issues, and I'm trying to kind of understand what he's struggling with, and and trying to draw him back into scripture, and and in the midst of that, he blurted out, I think you're weighing Paul's words way too heavily. And I asked him to unpack that. And he admitted that he, he no longer reads Paul as authoritative word for us, or at least primarily authoritative for him, Only Jesus' words are really, truly authoritative, and Paul's words are good, but they shouldn't be moral authority for us. I asked him why he feels this way, and he said, because so many of Paul's words just don't really work anymore for us as a people. To my friend, Paul's words on a number of topics were just outdated, outmoded from women, slaves and masters, sex and sexuality, alcohol, gossip. The language that we choose, the way that Paul talks about these things, is just too harsh, too legalistic, too brash, too authoritarian, to be, appri- to be applied broadly to people today. And I've been thinking about that conversation a ton. It's been heavy on my heart as I've been, on and I've been unpacking it with several trusted people. But it's also been ringing in my ears as I've been going through this short letter of Philemon and kind of looking at Paul's tactics in this letter, because. I think it's okay to to read this today and to be honest and kind of go, I see some of that in this letter, right? I mean, Paul, the way Paul writes does seem a little bit slick, doesn't it? Can we kind of own that? Dare I say maybe even manipulative? Like Paul is sort of buttering up Philemon, talking about how great he is so that he can drop down the hammer on what he needs him to do and then saying, I'm expecting you to obey what I'm telling you to do. Maybe that kind of like morally centered accountability is something that we should just leave in the first century and say, it doesn't really work today. That's an artifact of a bygone era. We shouldn't take that so seriously. Well, I mostly listen to my friend because I love him. I care about him. But I wanted to say to him, don't you think that maybe Paul is just saying a bunch of things that you wish he wouldn't say? Don't you think that the the level of accountability that we see Paul holding other people to is off-putting because the idea of somebody holding you accountable or having to hold somebody accountable to that standard is just off-putting to us? Doesn't it matter that the the, the Gospels of Jesus, which are certainly authoritative, were written after all of Paul's letters were in circulation? And Paul repeatedly notes his authority as a clear sign that he understands what he is writing in these letters as a continuation of the ministry of Jesus himself rather than some sort of addendum to Jesus' ministry? Is it possible that Paul's words and demeanor are tough for us sometimes because they just hit so close to home so often? So I do want to defend Paul this morning. Not that he necessarily needs a defender, but I'm going to anyways. And I particularly want to lift up This model of accountability as something that we really sorely need today. Accountability in many ways is a uniquely Christian concept, and while it can certainly be misused, it's essential. This week in in men's fraternity, a group group of community men who meet in, in the gym on Thursday mornings early, we had 70 men from the community listening to Julie Burns, who is uh, the, the chief nutritionist for the Chicago Blackhawks and a bunch of other high-level athletes. And she said something that just absolutely blew me away. She said, I can't believe there are this many guys here at 6 in the morning. This is blowing my mind that, that you would all come here and do this. And, and I want you to know I'm going to talk about dieting and when you eat and how much sleep you're getting and, and stress levels and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to talk about health stuff. But you guys are actually already enacting the statistically healthiest practice you could right now which is authentic community. And I grabbed her afterwards, and I said, hey, um, I'm preaching this week. Would you help me unpack that a little bit more so I can use you in my sermon? And she said, we should consider a man who is in peak physical shape but is isolated, that person should be considered less healthy than someone who is in, like, okay shape but surrounded by other people. Why? Because without accountability, without accountable, encouraging relationships, we are at risk. We're at risk. In the words of the brilliant Czech dissident turned president, Vláclav Havel, he says, whenever I've encountered any kind of deep problem with civilization anywhere in the world, whether it be the logging of rainforest or ethnic or religious intolerance or the brutal destruction of, of the cultural landscape that is taking centuries to develop, somewhere at the end of the long chain of events that gave rise to the problem at issue, I have always found one and the same cause, a lack of accountability to and responsibility for others and the world. So I'm I want to reclaim this morning accountability as a practice for us. And particularly Paul's model that he gives to us of accountability, seen so clearly in this short letter to Philemon. I, I want to give you enough context so that you can understand Paul's voice here, why he approaches Philemon in the way that he does. So I have three truths, three truths that I want to point out to you this morning and I want to unpack as we ponder Paul's model of accountability. And the first is this. We are closer to the first century cultural mentality of accountability than we've probably been since the first century. I I think that we are currently in a culture that is dangerously deficient in terms of accountable relationships. How often do we hear the phrase, It's not my place to judge. Or I need to let you live your life. New Testament professor Michael Kruger makes the observation that we live in a culture where the thing that is most offensive is not actually doing something wrong, but telling someone else that they're doing something wrong. Bad behavior gets a pass. Calling it bad behavior does not. And I think he's absolutely correct. In our culture... You are likely to hear people question any sort of moral absolute. But the reality is speaking into another person's life, especially in a challenging way, is an absolute no-no in most places. We see that phrase, you do you. You hear that every once in a while. You You do you, where we respect somebody's right to autonomy and lifestyle. You can make whatever decision you want, you do you. And that mentality has seeped into many places in our lives, but honestly, especially I'm glad to see some of the younger generation here again today, it's endemic in your generation, I know it is, where social capital is more valuable than anything else. And the thought is if I, if I challenge someone, if I stick out, if I, if I offer correction, if I, if I say no to something, if I tell somebody that they're wrong, all that social capital goes away, and that's just too costly. So hold that intention with the reality of of social media and and how ubiquitous it is for us and the the layers of technology that give us this buffer of perceived safety to to sort of morally posture loudly and and proudly about almost anything. This is where we see sort of a new sort of activism, even though the, the term is overdone, where we see something like cancel culture, where anyone in power can have things brought up from their past that can adversely affect their future. So on the one hand, we live in this culture that holds up tolerance and and being free of judgment and autonomy. But then if, if one is removed relationally from somebody, they feel free to point out other people's wrongs and make them pay for it. This is the tension that we live in. That's where we are. Where one can say, I don't feel comfortable holding you accountable in the context of a relationship, but I'm more than willing to embrace a lot of of societal moral norms from a distance but the reality is when we do that we isolate ourselves and this is where i think we're closer to the first century roman world than we probably realize in a recent podcast church historian roberta amundsen was asked about the parallels between the first century roman world where the new testament is birthed out of and our culture today and she noted that in the first century roman world they had a very similar you-do-you mindset. As long as you weren't in flagrant defiance of Roman law, you were allowed to mostly live your life without expectation of moral accountability. She noted that this was particularly true of Roman male elite people, uh, Roman male elites, those who were considered to be uh, a potter familias. So before the advent of the gospel of Jesus, wealthy Roman male elites really had carte blanche. They could do whatever they want. They were encouraged to sire as many children as they could from multiple women. They were instructed to to assert their power over the week and do it as publicly as possible to keep the, the structure Roman structure in order. They could go to any foreign city that they wanted to and basically act however they wanted to without repercussions as long as it wasn't in their home city. They were conditioned to not work very hard and to not take many risks. So while Roman moral ideas were upheld, the greatest of those imperatives was from a very popular philosopher named Epicurus, who who, uh, sort of recoined the phrase from the wisdom of Solomon when he said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This was adopted into popular Roman culture as a philosophy of how to live, especially for the male elite. The moral imperative here is that in Roman life, it was wrong to tell anybody not to seek pleasure. And just like us, the Roman world was not particularly encouraged towards those relationships that would lead to accountability. My friend down the church, uh, down the road at, at Christ Church Oak Brook, Dan Meyer, recently said, and has said numerous times in the last year, we are living in a first century world again. And I think this is most evident to me in our lack of relational courage and cachet. But let's remember something about this. Who is Paul writing to? He's writing to Philemon. And who is Philemon? Philemon is the epitome of a Roman male elite, right? He's a paterfamilias. He's a wealthy slave owner. And yet Paul, who's also a Roman citizen, he knows how this goes. He knows Epicureanism. He understands the dominant culture. He's steeped in Roman life from childhood. He doesn't relate to him the way that empire does. Which leads me... To our second truth today which is this we've been taught that accountability is authoritarian patriarchal and judgmental but that's a lie that's a lie I was part of a lot of accountability groups growing up in the evangelical church which were primarily focused on on doing what is morally right resisting temptation trying to live a holy life It was not uncommon after a a youth gathering or a conference or a a Bible study at our Christian college that Katie and I went to for for us to have a time of accountability where guys and girls would go to a different place and we would share struggles that were going on in our lives, whether it be alcohol or smoking or lust or sexual sin or anger. And the idea was confess it, get it out in front of other people, and these people are going to hold you accountable. And sometimes it was a beautiful thing and it worked really well. Sometimes there was not much follow-up on the back end, and it really wasn't true accountability. But one thing that I realized as I'm, I'm looking back on these opportunities was that what, what these experiences had in common was that the accountability was almost always in the negative. I need people to help me from my most base urges and desires that we've all mutually agreed upon our sin, and I need to not do bad things. And this can be really helpful. Don't go and do bad things. But it also has the potential to lead to shame, to lead to a misuse of authority, and oftentimes it just devolves into gossip. Did you hear what that guy did? Did you hear what she did? But I want you to notice something really carefully. In this sterling example of accountability in the book of Philemon, Paul doesn't do that at all. It's not in the negative. It is like all in the positive. He never says, shame on you for having Onesimus as a slave. He doesn't even tell Philemon to release him. He says things like, Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I'm writing to you, knowing that you're going to do even more than I say. In this context of a deep, abiding relationship that these men had together, this is how Paul approaches it. And remember, Paul is writing in a context where Roman male elites were never challenged on anything. For Paul to tell Philemon what to do, especially, he's not in a position of power. He's in chains. He's under house arrest. And he's challenging and pushing this man who's in power to moral absolutes. That was completely radical in the first century world. And I'm sure many readers, just like Philemon, bristled at Paul in the very same way that many of us bristle at Paul when we read him, and he says difficult things. He's being legalistic, he's being authoritarian, he's judgmental, he's being holier than thou. But is it possible that we read Paul that way because our culture has conditioned us to believe that anyone telling us anything is bad? Because if we really read Paul's words and we took a look at his, his strategy, it sounds to me like Paul genuinely loves Onesimus. And he loves Philemon. And he loves Philemon enough as a brother to to, to talk to him about this. And because they share a, a primary identity in Christ, he's free to encourage him, to challenge him, to ask things of him, because he really believes that by doing so, he's helping a brother in Christ. He's helping him follow Jesus, he's helping him to love Jesus more. That's not authoritarian. That's not patriarchal. That's not judgmental. That's not about shame. That's not about sin management. It's about seeking the very best for his dear friend Philemon. That's the kind of accountability that is an act of love, and it's motivated by love. I read several commentaries in the past couple weeks that really honed in on verse 22 and, and kind of painted it as this manipulative hook. Maybe you heard that as I was reading it. One more thing, Paul says, prepare a guest room for me i'm hoping through your prayers to be restored unto you in other words you better obey what i'm telling you to do because i'm eventually going to come to you to your house i'm going to check in on you and i'm going to see if you've done what i've told you to do right it does read that way but if we take these words in the context of of paul's language throughout this letter i actually think it should be read more like this one more thing a guest room for me dear brother for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you and I can't wait to come and see how you're doing and celebrate with you we so often assume the worst of of people and expect them to fall short of our expectations but true accountability that's rooted in a common relationship in Christ that's like the very best kind of cheerleader and encouragement you could have it sees the full potential of of Christian hope in another person and says, I believe in you. I'm genuinely excited to see you rise to the occasion. I'm, I, I, I'm I'm, encouraging you to buck the dominant system, to do the right thing, and I can't wait to celebrate with you. That's not authoritarian. That's not judgmental. That's loving and gracious and hopeful, and it is so beautifully countercultural. And I just want to say that's the kind of friendship and relationship that I want and need in my life. I don't want someone to say, hey, you do you. It's not my place to say anything. I want someone who's going to sharpen me. That's going to lead to life, and it's going to be so attractive to the world around us when we live into those kind of relationships because those kinds of relationships are in such short supply today. Third and final truth, and that's this. The church is the best place to begin (laughs) to live with accountability. In many ways, the, the, concept, the concept of accountability that I'm putting forward is, uh, you know, this, this one on the basis of love rather than shame. It, that is a uniquely Christian idea. Tom Holland, brilliant British author, in his book Dominion, which is amazing, makes this case. Um, mind you now, Holland is a, is a um, secular agnostic historian. And he makes the case that most of the things that we treasure in our Western society today and we take for granted as, as good and healthy They didn't exist prior to the spread of the gospel of Jesus, including things like human rights, uniquely Christian concept, true care for the poor, the strong being mindful and caring for the weak, and maybe most of all, this concept of mutual friendship and accountability. It's a uniquely Christian thing. It's based on Jesus. And and I think that when Jesus called his disciples together when he was doing his ministry, and he began preparing them for what we, we come to know today as the church, right, to become that, He desired for and he designed it to be the structure that would house those kinds of relationships, truly accountable relationships as a light to the world. When he says in Matthew 18, if a brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. He knows that the church is going to be the safest, best place for us to do so under the banner of his lordship, gathered around his word, bound together by a desire to, to love one another in an accountable way. And I think Paul understands this, which is why he wrote Philemon full of love and joy and anticipation rather than shame. I think he understood that accountability in community is a health factor. And in that sense, the church is the healthiest place for us to seek and receive those kinds of relationships. It's not going to be nearly as effective outside of this sort of gathering, outside of the church, because we don't have as much in common. We have Jesus that binds us together in unity. So friends, I just want to say this place is a gift. Church is a gift. The people of the church are a gift. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. But imperfect people pushing each other towards love and good deeds in Christ, it's such a beautiful thing. And and guess what? That's what this church is founded on, Hinsdale Covenant Church. We're, We're pietists. I wish I could unpack that more fully for you, but that's our That's our heritage, a group of people who gather around God's word, take it really seriously, read it and listen to it, and they are transformed by it, and they call each other and hold each other accountable to holy living so that we can go and be a witness to the world around us. And we're marked not by a a guilt or some sort of authoritarianism, but joy in Christ and freedom in Christ. And that's been happening in this place for 129 years. It's literally like that kind of relationship has seeped into these, these, these bricks and these columns and these beams. It is who we are as a church, and we are invited today to live into that more fully. And I recognize that many of us feel disconnected from, that, from those sort of relationships, from the church at large over the last couple years. What better way to start fresh than in a biblically accountable way? in joyful hope of all that God is going to do in us and through us as we seek him. So, join one of our Bible studies. Prioritize Christian fellowship and friendship. Reach out to someone that you know is going to be that kind of of united brother or sister with you. For the youth who are here, never ever miss youth group. Why would you ever miss youth group? Why? Because... Those are the kind of friendships that are going to encourage your faith in the midst of so many friendships that can't do that in the same way. Invest in that ministry. You need those kind of relationships. And for everyone, do not believe the ridiculous, bogus falsehood that true friendship is found through tacit tolerance. You do you. No, true friendship is deep calling out to deep. It's a bleeding heart that says, I believe the very best for you and the best for you will always be Jesus, and I'm going to point you to Jesus because I love you. That is what Paul models for us. It's not irrelevant. It's not something that we leave back in the first century. It is more relevant than ever. It was love that transformed Philemon's heart and that changed that small church in Colossae and Laodicea, and it changed a generation of churchgoers there. And I get excited about this because Nothing gives me more hope than when the church takes seriously their call to live as a city on a hill and lives like Jesus in a culture that might not even recognize him and does so out of love and holy obedience, because that, my friends, is how transformation is going to happen in this world. Lord Jesus, please let that be so. Let it be so in us. Amen. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray, as we do the work of God's people in prayer. Lord Jesus, would you strengthen our church? Certainly, Lord, our our gathering here, Hinsdale Covenant Church, this little corner of the kingdom, but would you strengthen your church everywhere in all places? that we might be a light on a hill. Lord, we own that we live in a world where those sorts of life-giving relationships that are accountable to one another and love and care for one another are in such short supply. So would you allow our churches to be places where those relationships can flourish and sharpen us and strengthen us and be a witness to the world? Lord, I lift up to you today anyone who is here anyone that's listening to this later, anyone that's on the live stream who is spiritually and relationally isolated today who feels alone in their journey of following you who is longing for relationships where deep call out to deep Lord, first I want you to surround them with with your love and your compassion and your care. And then, Lord, I ask that you would surround them with people who understand them and who love them and who will care for them and challenge them and most of all, people who will point them to you out of love, who believe in them, who are cheering them on. Lord, I pray for our youth and children here today as they grow up in a a generation that doesn't do these kinds of relationships well, where there are so many layers and barriers to true fellowship and friendship and accountability to the kind of relationship that Paul and, and Philemon model for us. Lord, would you surround them with your peace? Would you surround them with friends, peers that love Jesus? They're going to encourage them in their journey of faith in you. And Lord, would you be raising the children and youth of this church up as a generation that lives in the way your church is supposed to, that seeks those kind of relationships and fosters them? May they be sharpened and sharpened. Lord, for all of us. Would you teach us what it means to reconnect in this season in a way that is really meaningful, that is way better and and, and more faithful to what you, Jesus, have called us to from the very beginning when you called those disciples together and you taught them what it means to be church. Would Would you bring us back there, not to where we were two years ago, but would you bring us back to your very heart for relationships? For the most lonely, Lord, would you just begin to surround them with a cloud of witnesses, a cloud of friends. And Lord, may the way that we treat one another and live with one another and do life together be a witness to the watching world. Not to how great we are, Lord, but how great you are. Our Lord, our Savior, our friend, our brother.